0: Take your Bible and go to the book of Judges, chapter 2. And we're going we're to go through some of these things here this morning. Give me a, give me a moment to get set up here. I have entitled this message, In Due Time. In Due Time. Um, there is a, while you're turning there, you're probably already there right now in Judges, chapter 2. But while you're there, uh, I'm going to read you a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. Um, This passage in Deuteronomy records the words of God, and it's from where we get our title from this morning. It records the words of God to an unbelieving Israel and to a backslidden Israel. Some that believe, backslidden is those who believe and are not really living right anymore. Remember, God is not slack concerning His promise, but He's long-suffering. His promises are going to come through, whether they're positive or negative for us, but He is long-suffering. Now here's the verse in Deuteronomy 32, 35. The Bible says, To me, God says, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot, those who are not following the Lord, their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. I'm going to read that again. To me, God says, belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for allowing us to be here. Lord, we've seasoned this morning with prayer. And Lord, I Lord, I remembered that, uh, to pray for the good ones, Lord. As uh, for I pray that uh, You open the door for them to get a house. Uh, They're on base, Lord, when they transition out of here, Lord. Uh, uh, but back into our, 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 our text this morning, Lord, I pray, Lord, that You bless this time, bless the reading of Your Word. Lord, use me to convey what You want uh, to convey to me and to these folks here, Lord, these dear folks who have gathered to worship You, to hear from You. And, Lord, and, and because they love You, Lord, we thank You again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read this verse. One more time, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. Put differently, God is saying what needs to come around is going to come around in due time. And back in the year 1741, in the United States of America, a long time ago, a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards preached from this very verse. Uh, he entitled that message, Sinners in the Hand, in the Hands of an Angry God. Many of y'all maybe have heard of that. And among other things, he focused on in those, in that sermon that he wrote and preached in 1741, many years ago. He focused on those three words in due time. In due time. This morning we're going to take a, a different direction than Jonathan Edwards did, and we're going to look at the consequences. Of our actions, how the consequences of our actions are manifested in due time, with some examples from the book of Judges. And as we've journeyed this year through the Old Testament, we've looked at a couple folks, uh, and individuals, some patriarchs in the Bible. We've looked at Abraham, Uh, we've looked at uh, Jacob, we looked at Moses, Uh, and last week, if you remember, we looked at Joshua and as he crossed, uh, led the Israel across the Jordan and to Jericho and on. And through these, these men, who were once spiritually impoverished, uh, those, I mean, Abraham worshipped idols. And we find idols in as far in as Jacob and even in the book of Judges as they return to them. But through these impoverished men, God miraculously intervened and wrought incredible victories over and over and over and over again. But somehow, just to, just to continue in this introduction this morning, somehow... Doesn't victory seem to lose its influence over us the further we are from experiencing that victory, right? Does that make sense? So we have this high mountain, we have this high mountaintop experience, this victory, and the farther we get from that victory, we forget what that victory is like. We forget that closeness with God. And the further we are from that, the more difficult it is for us to achieve it again or, or even to understand that victory. And what was true for a nation like Israel is true for any nation, for Germany, for the United States, for Romania, you have whatever whatever it is. But it's also true for us as individual modern-day believers. In other words, it's hard for those who have never experienced victory or have forgotten that experience. It's hard for those individuals to muster up the courage to achieve any further victory. And in addition to this, the lull after the battle, or the relative peace we could call it after a certain victory, is often the prime time for monumental failure. Monumental failure. It's also the prime time for the devil to attack. We get this great victory. We've had great Sundays. I think every Sunday is a great Sunday. We had a baptism last week. Those are great things. But many times right after those things is the prime time for monumental failure and the prime time for the devil to attack because he knows your guard is down. And the book of Judges here gives us ample evidence of such as the children of Israel lived through this vicious cycle of deliverance, disobedience, persecution, and repentance. Over and over. Seven times I think they go through this in the book of Judges. Deliverance, Actually, it starts with disobedience, persecution, repentance, God delivers. This is the unfortunate cycle that we see God's chosen people endure, but we also see it in our lives. I mean, let's be honest. It's there. Our lives are like the spiritual roller coaster sometimes, just like the book of Judges. You know, it doesn't take long to get there either as a nation or as a people, look at um, Judges chapter 2. I want to read a few verses there. Judges chapter 2, look at verse number 6. The Bible says, And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man into his inheritance to possess the land. That's the promised land we're talking about. Verse 7 says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died, being a hundred and ten years old. Verse 9 says, They buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath-Heras, in the mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Gash, Gash. Verse 10, And also all that generation were gathered unto the fathers. So they are also buried, dead and buried. And there arose another generation. There arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. You know, we are never more than one generation from serving Balaam. Never more than one. One generation from serving something other than God. Experience tells us, That without a deep commitment to God and without God's intervention, a father's convictions become at best a son's preferences. And the day of their calamity is at hand. So whether these things are manifested now or later, without intervention and without a hard right turn to God, their foot, those who do not follow God, their foot shall slide in due time. But if Judges records the history of how far God's people can go, and they went pretty far, if it records how evil believers can be, it also records the grace of God. It also records the mercy of an intervening God. It records how far God will go in the forgiveness of our sins. The book of Judges, yeah, records some dark times in in the nation of Israel, but it records some of the greatest Manifestations of God's love for his people, how far he would go, how far he would go. Yes, his way is often not our way, and we will reap what we sow, but our God is a forgiving God. Knowing that Israel would soon forget his grace, and that was they would soon forget his mercy, God still sent judges to deliver them. Over and over and over again. Long-suffering indeed. And knowing, get this now, knowing that the majority of men today still reject Him, in due time, throughout all of this, He sent the judge of all the earth. The book of Judges is men. But God sent His only begotten Son to deliver us, the judge of all the earth, to deliver us and to bless us. You know, Judges shows how far God will go with the nation of Israel in that time stamp. But the cross truly, truly shows how far God has gone already to deliver man, to deliver you and me from the depths of sin and death, deliverance from ourself. So I want to point out this morning that regardless of how far we are from God, regardless of how far our children can be from God or those loved ones that are around us, the book of Judges and ultimately the cross of Calvary prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that there's still hope. There's still time. You know, the book of Judges records the darkest times of the nation of Israel. They do very wicked things that rival all the other nations around them. They did worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. As a matter of fact, later in the Old Testament, God calls them Sodom and Gomorrah and says that the sins that are in Israel are way more than the sins that were in Sodom. So regardless of how far we come from God, there's hope we must turn to God. So whether you are an unbeliever this morning or you have drifted from the Lord, we are to forsake all, that's the calling, and come to Christ forsake it all, and come to Christ. When it's all said and done, it's all that matters is Jesus Christ. I think John said it best in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, as the entire closure of Scripture comes to an end. A few verses later, he says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst, Come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life. Freely. God says, come. Just turn and come to me. Come as you are and meet the King of kings. Meet the Creator. Meet your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's still time. So wherever we are as an unbeliever or as, a, or as a Christian not really walking right with God, we know who we are and we know those times make a hard right to God. Make a hard right to God. In the book of Judges, I think we get multiple pictures, as we've already talked about this morning already, multiple pictures of how God's people seem to always drift from God. What's that song we sang last week or the week before last? Prone to wander. We're prone to wander from God. That means with, without keeping ourselves in check, we are going to drift from God, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And Judges is a perfect example of that. People always drift from the Lord. We see that God intervenes, and God through them gets great victories. Take your Bible and go over to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. We'll give you a, a short outline this morning as we look at some, some truths from the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6, look at verse number 1. <clears throat> the Bible says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites the children of Israel made them the dens, which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. Verse 3 says, And so it was, when Israel had sown, that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites, and the children of the east, three groups there, and they came up against them. And they encamped against them, and destroyed the increase of the earth, till thou come unto Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass, for they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude." For both they and their camels were without num- number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And, the, and Israel was greatly impoverished, impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. The first thing we see this morning is an impoverished people. An impoverished people, a broken people, a people of destitution. You know, as it was for the children of Israel... We are always less when we don't have God. We were always less when we don't have God. And as is, the, as is the pattern in Judges, Israel had forsaken the Lord and become destitute, impoverished. They no longer, I mean, this is God's children. They no longer found themselves living on the mountain with God, but now hiding in the mountain. There's a difference. And not hiding from God, hiding from man. Hiding from the Midianites. They were hiding from God's creation and not from God. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about fear. When Israel above all feared God, they had no reason to fear man. But when they feared man above all, they became a broken people who were fearful of just about anything. And now they find themselves hiding in caves and dens. The Israelites chose the world over God and it showed. Again, just one short generation from Joshua and they found themselves estranged from God. One generation. They went from conquering cities like Jericho and forcing greater nations to flee to a people now hiding in caves. What changed? They left God. They left God. They left their first love. And because of this, they were an impoverished people. Their trajectory its not surprising. You see folks today who, who stop reading the Bible, who stop gathering with God's people. They stop doing things that God expects of them. And before you know it, they're hiding in caves, if you will, spiritually away from God. Again, their trajectory is not surprising if you read the text. Their, their situation is directly related to their sin. Look at verse number one. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them. He gave them over to them. He stopped protecting them. You know, those folks over there that were, that were going to, uh, maybe you were going to conquer one day, now they're going to conquer you. Why? Because you do not live for me. You know, we serve a loving God. We serve a gracious God. Don't look at the God of judges as some mean ogre sitting over there just coming down with a hard hammer. That's not the God of the Bible. We serve a loving God and a gracious God, more merciful than you, you and I can ever imagine, but He cannot and will not bless wickedness. It's not going to happen. And while the Bible doesn't teach us that prosperity is always the result of living righteousness, or living righteous, nor does it promise poverty to those who don't live right for God, it does promise an unexplainable inner peace from God that when we are right with God, we know we're right, and we have the, the overwhelming accomplishment of God within us. Remember, uh, I'll reference it later on where God talks about through Jesus, Jesus speaks, and He says, be ye be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We have that overcoming spirit within us. God gives us the ability to overcome obstacles like we talked about last week, our Jerichos, if you will. Now, God can certainly bless us today tangibly. He certainly can, and He does. And He can certainly bless and chastise us tangibly today, and He does. But prosperity or poverty is not necessarily a sign of your spirituality. It's just not taught in the Bible. Furthermore, it's evident that living according to biblical principles generally yields positive results, regardless of one's belief. Biblical principles are good principles. So, whether or not you're a believer or not, for, for the most part, if you apply good principles to your business, you're going to have a successful business if all else things, everything runs right. But good order, if you try not to lie, steal, and cheat, you'll probably deal with people who are not lying, stealing, and cheating. Those are biblical principles. They, they, go, they, they work well. Good principles are just that, good principles. But here in the Old Testament, God made it abundantly clear that physical success for them and physical failure for the children of Israel was indeed connected to their walk with God. Very much so. And as Second 2 Peter 2.6 states, many of the events in the Old Testament, they are examples unto those that after should live godly. That's us. They are an examples to us. Peter says it. Jude says it. They are our examples. So to put this in perspective, let me ask a, a couple of rhetorical questions this morning. Are you now close to God, or do you remember a time when you were close to God? That's just a rhetorical question. Are you now close to God, or do you remember a time when you were close to God? If so, whether it's now or then, you probably also remember certain things that you were able to overcome because of your closeness with God, and you can probably also recall certain temptations or obstacles you failed to overcome because you were not close to God. Everybody with me? So you know when you're walking right with God, there's some temptations that, that come your way, and they're not an issue because you have the power of God within. You're relying on God to combat those temptations. But then you find yourself out of the reading of the Bible, out of prayer, out of church, and those little bitty temptations that you had no problems with now Just take complete control over you. That had to be what they were feeling. I think it's sort of what was going on here with the children of Israel. On a larger scale, on a more physical scale, when they were close to man, or close to God rather, one man chased a thousand men, the Bible says, and when they were not close to God, they hid in caves. When they were close to God, rivers were parted and city walls fell before them. When they were not, they couldn't overcome the smallest of nations. Remember Ai, small nation. They lost 36 men because of sin in the camp. The interesting part is that most likely there were men hiding in these caves who remembered their grandfathers getting great victory over a superior enemy because they were with God. And unfortunately, there are men today who remember experiencing great victories with God but fail over the slightest temptations because they're far from God. Many of us have become spiritually impoverished. Proverbs 4.19 says, "...the way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble." We would, of course, agree with that as we read that. And we would even show sympathy maybe for those in darkness, but we forget that verse is not written to those in darkness. It's written to those in light. It's a warning to us to not walk in darkness so that we can see where we're going and not stumble over these little bitty obstacles. Because if if we do walk in the darkness in due time without divine intervention and a hard right to God, we, like the children of Israel, we're going to be in the same place spiritually. I think this this concept here of, of God's intervention based on our hard right or our repentance, His intervention based on our repentance. Now, God intervenes as He He wills, and we'll we'll talk about that. But this is true not only in in our individual lives, in our families, in our churches, in our countries. There are countries who once stood for greatness. They need a hard right turn to God and a hard right turn to God's church and God's things in due time. Like the children of Israel, we're going to be in the same place spiritually and maybe even physically. Oh, how easy it is for us who are more than conquerors, God says, to become impoverished and exchange the mountain of God for a cave. I'm afraid that this describes too many of us too much of the time. We must constantly, you and I must constantly determine to get back on the high ground. I really don't want to come across as a negative Uh, a negative sermon this morning, but it's it's high time for communities and churches and nations to just get back on the saddle, so to speak, and serve God, and serve God. Notice again, Judges chapter 6, look at verses 7 and 8. The Bible says, "...and it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet." You know, I am constantly reminded of the grace and mercy of our God, especially when reading the book of Judges. In this narrative, we see first what we've called an impoverished people, what the Bible calls an impoverished people, but now we see an intervening God, an intervening God. Look at verse 6 again. And Israel was greatly impoverished. Verse 7, it came to pass when they cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which, sent, and, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, I brought you forth out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all that oppressed you, and drave them out before you, and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed my voice. God can say the same thing to us. I delivered you. I, I, I provided salvation through the cross of my Son, and I told you to do this and do that. But you obeyed not. We have an intervening God. Praise God. And He certainly, again, intervenes according to His own goodness and does so at His own will, even when we show no signs of repentance We serve a great God. Have you ever been in a place sometime for away from the Lord for a while, and God just gives you what they used to call that an olive branch or something, and God's just like, wow, God didn't have to do that for me, but now He made me think of something, maybe a Bible verse, or or maybe a preacher, or maybe a mom or a dad or a cousin, and made me think of living right for God for a moment. God intervening, trying to get us back. Remember what He told the the old uh, the, the the children of Israel: All day long I've stretched forth my hand. To a disobedient and gainsaying people all day long. God intervenes, but He often intervenes when we are in genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. Hold your place there in in Judges 6 and just go a couple pages over to the right to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10. We're gonna talk about another time when Israel was impoverished. In Judges chapter 10, look at verse number 10. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. Continuing in that cycle of deliverance, disobedience, persecution, and repentance because of their impoverishment, Israel, once again, they repent. I mean, we're, we're just like them. We go through all of this, something doesn't go right, then we, go, we turn to God and we repent. And quite honestly, for those who are truly God's people, some sort of repentance will always occur in due time. I believe that if you're living for the Lord, there's going to be some time, or you're, if you're one of His, there's going to be some times in your life where you're going to repent. It's just a. It's part of who you are, the creation that God's put in you. But again, God desires true lip service. And many times we repent often after we find ourselves in a dark place, not before. I heard a preacher tell me one time, keep a short list of your sins. Now we've heard before, count your blessings. And it's a good thing to count your blessings and see what God has done in your life. But keep a short list of your sins. Repent often and stay close to the Lord. God desires true, genuine repentance, not just lip service or actions that are clearly performed just for the sake of deliverance. And you might be surprised, but I've tried that. You know, Lord, forgive me, and not even, not even meaning that. God loves us, and He wants to be our Father. In that same chapter there, in Judges chapter 10, look at verse 11. The Bible says, And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not, I again, he says the same thing. Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the children of Ammon and from the Philistines, the Zidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites did oppress you? And ye cried to me, and I delivered you out of their hand. Verse 13, Yet ye have forsaken me and have served other gods. Wherefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you. Wow. Wow! Let them deliver you. God told Gideon back in Joshua chapter six, or Judges chapter six, to destroy. Judges chapter six is, is the is the calling of Gideon, and we won't get too much of that tonight or this morning. But God told Gideon to destroy a certain altar made unto Baal. If we were to or to Baal, if we were to read all of Judges chapter six, which we won't, we will see that God called him. Um, Gideon was out threshing behind the floor, hiding from the Midianites, uh, doing some work. God called him into the ministry, so to speak. And he told him to destroy the altar given unto Baal that's on your father's land. Take it down. Get rid of it. And Gideon was obedient after a conversation with the Lord. He was obedient. And he also did it at night because he was afraid the Midians might see it. So, but he still did it. He did it stealthily. Maybe he was a green beret or something. I don't know. But after that, they, they came to Gideon's father, whose name was Joash, And they want to kill Gideon because they figured out who it was. So I guess he wasn't a creeper. He was probably in the airport. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But they found out who it was and they wanted to kill Gideon. But his father, Joash, who had in the past bowed unto Baal, he gave them a unique response. In Judges 6.31, he said this, Will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? If he be a god, if Baal be a god, let him plead for himself because one has cast down his altar. In other words, if Baal is truly a god, let him mourn for his own altar. Let him figure out how to rebuild it. If Baal is a god, why does he need our help to save his altar? Let him go figure it out. And in Judges chapter 10, God knew that Israel had indeed bowed the knee to Baal and to other false gods and says, if they are truly your gods, If they are your gods, go call on them. Go call on them to deliver you. Why are you crying to me? They're your gods. Don't come crying to me. And there's a great lesson in there for us today. I mean, it's pretty obvious. On and on we go through, as even Christians, we go through our life devoting all of our time and resources to things other than God to things other than the things of God, until a day comes when we find ourselves impoverished, whether tangibly or spiritually, we need God and we cry out to God and God will be just as justified in responding to us as He was to them the same way. Go and cry unto your gods. Go and cry unto your computers and phones, to your fancy cars and careers. Let them deliver you. To your idols, to your, your, your Hollywood stars, let cry unto them. They're the ones you've been forsaking me to go watch and listen to the music, to whatever it may be, we can all put our, our God in that hole there who we've been serving other than God. And God says, don't come crying to me. Go cry to them. Let them deliver you. Speaking of man-made idols, the Bible states in Psalm chapter 115, it goes through, they have eyes they can't, they can't, they can't see, they have hands they can't feel, they have feet they can't walk, they have ears they can't hear. And, he, and the psalmist there concludes in verse 8, they that make them the idols, are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. And if we, you and I, want God to intervene on our behalf, I personally believe we must have a deep, genuine heart of repentance, even for the, even for the smallest sins. Again, He intervenes according to His own will and purpose, but praise God, He's mindful of us. He's mindful of us. Look at verse... Back in chapter 10 again, look at verse 15 and 16. Verse 14, he says, Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. Verse 15, And the children of Israel said unto the Lord, We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord. And that their repentance was genuine is proof in the next phrase. And his soul was grieved the misery of Israel. His soul was grieved. Back in Judges chapter 6, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet. He intervened there. Over and over God intervened. Listen, I'm not saying that God will take away all of your problems, especially in this life. He will in 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 the end. God doesn't even promise worldly peace. He doesn't promise peace in this life. He doesn't even promise the absence of conflict. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. What did He come to send? A sword. And later in that same chapter, Jesus said, A man's foes shall be they of his own household. And in John 6:33, praise God, Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation. You shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. So I'm not saying God will bless you with prosperity if you serve Him. And I'm not saying that He will punish you with poverty if you don't. But I am saying that with a life of true faith and repentance, God intervenes and enables. We must only trust Him. And that middle phrase of Judges chapter 10, verse 15, really sums up how our response should be. They said, "...do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee." That's repentance. Lord, I'm guilty. Remember David, uh, when he was presented with a similar thing, he says, I surrender myself to you, not to the enemies, not to man, not to these false gods, but to you, God. The children of Israel yielded completely to, and they banked on the mercy of God. Praise the Lord. Think of our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane when God the Father gave him that cup. He took the cup, trusting the Father. We too must take the cup. We must trust our Father. Put, trust the Father. Put all our eggs in one basket, if you will. Put all of our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do thou unto me, God, what seemeth, whatever seemeth good to you. Whatever seems right to you, Lord, I'm good with it. I'll take it because I know that you're a just God. What was God's response to that? His soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. What a God. What a God that He would even be mindful of our repentance. But He is. So much that His soul was grieved. In context here in in, in Judges 10 and 6 and on through the book of Judges, God's response is the same over and over and over again in some way, or, or some way, similar to this. He continued to be grieved when they repented and He sent deliverance. Over and over. And then back in Judges chapter 6, if you want to go back there, that deliverer was a man named Gideon. Remember, Judges chapter 6, verse 5, states that the Midianites devoured the lands, devoured the land, for they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers. That word grasshoppers is where we, where we learn about our desert locusts. And they're still around today, and they are ferocious. They can cover all kinds of things. As late as 2015, they went through some uh, places in Egypt, I think, and just ate everything in sight. They are ferocious. And these Midianites, along with the children, um, over in verse number 3, the Midianites came up, the Amalekites came up, and they came, uh, and the children of the East came up to fight against Israel. This group of people greatly outnumbered Israel. Some would say 180,000 folks studying history and, and, and the numbers here in the Bible. 180-some thousand folks, which just added to Israel's reading, reasons to hide in the caves I mean, look at them. They're, they're, they're less than that. Some say that they outnumber them six to one. And Israel sees this large group of people like grasshoppers in their neck of the woods, and they ran to the caves. And there they are hiding in the caves. Can you picture it? Can you picture yourself there in the caves? Maybe, maybe it's in your office. Maybe it's at home somewhere. But you find yourself all alone. The world is all around you. Your your world seems small because everything is closing in. You feel impoverished spiritually. You feel all alone. Matter of fact, look at um, go back to uh, six, chapter six. Look at verse fourteen. This is God speaking to Gideon, and the Lord looked upon him and said, "Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee?" I think I missed, um, let, me see, let me see if I can find the right passage here. Oh, yes, go to verse 11. I'm sorry, Judges six eleven. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in oprah, uh, that pertained unto Joash, that's Gideon's father, the Abbeazorite, Ab- 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 and his son Gideon, thrust wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord. If the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? Where be all the miracles which our fathers told of us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. So let me ask you that. Who forsake who? I think God's people forsook God. And God is chastising His people. And if we can bring that back into our own minds this morning, we can find ourselves in that really small place sometimes. The whole world against us, it seems. Even God, it seems, is afar, but He's not. Just turn. Make a hard right turn to God and repent and watch Him intervene. Watch Him intervene. I want you to jump over to chapter 7 now. Because when God intervenes, things happen. When God intervenes, things happen. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Then Jeroboam, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him, rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them, by the hill of Moray and the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, My own hand hath served me, has saved me. Now therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from the Mount uh, Gilead. And there returned of the people, 20 and 2,000, 22,000 people left the battle. And there remained 10,000. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are still too many, or yet too many. Bring them down unto the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. Verse 5 says, So he brought down the people into the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, one that lappeth of the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, every one that boweth down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men. But of the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred, by these three hundred, But these 300 men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into their hands, and let all the people go, every man unto his place. Jump down to verse 16. Uh, The Bible says, And he divided, this is Gideon, and Gideon divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet in every man's hand, with empty pitchers and lamps with pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me, and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. When I Blow the trumpet, I and all that are with me. Then blow ye the trumpets and on every side of all the camp and say the sword of the Lord and Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch and they had but newly set the watch and they blew the trumpets and brake the pitchers in their hands and the three companies blew the trumpets and brake the pitchers and held the lamps in their hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow with all and they cried the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And they stood every man in his place around the camp, a circle around the camp. And the host ran, the Midianites ran and cried and fled. And the 300 blew the trumpets. And the Lord said, every man soared against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled to Bethsheta and Zeroth, out into the border of Mehoth and unto Tabath. God intervened and gave them an incredible victory, an unheard of victory. You know, we've probably heard of Gideon's story, if we've been in church for any time at all. We've heard how God wrought a great victory through him. But I want to point out how that great victory was. A little bit of details about this, and we'll be finished this morning. The Midianite army, again, outnumbered the Israelites some six to one. But in order to ensure that pride didn't creep into the heart of Israel, he made those odds even worse. 300 to a, uh, thousands of men. And those 300 men surrounded those thousands of men with swords and smoldering lanterns." We get the picture of a of a, of a, a picture of a pitcher of water and the, and the torch was inside the, the lantern or inside the pitcher there and it was in dirt or sand or something like that. It was lit but it was smoldering and as soon as you broke those pitchers, the, the oxygen could reach the torch and it would light up. And those 300 men with those pitchers and lanterns surrounded the, the Midianites <coughs> with those prepared torches, and as soon as those oxygens, when they broke those things, the Midianites were surrounded by lights, trumpets, and yelling, the sword of the Lord, and Gideon, and God gave the victory. In due time, God gave them this victory, an incredible victory, a victory that by any military standards would not be successful. We wouldn't do this. We wouldn't get the soldiers and, and get around and do this kind of thing. It would be ludicrous for us to do this today. But 300 men with torches and swords wrought an incredible victory over thousands. And if God can do this through a once impoverished people, He can conquer any battle that we face, any battle at all. He intervened for a people who just turned from idol worship. They were just worshiping idols and God delivered them. Deuteronomy 32 equates idol worship with demon worship. They were just worshiping devils and God turned them and made a great victory through them. They turned from worshiping those things and turned to the true living God. And even though they proved time and time again to be a stiff-necked and sinful people, God continually also had His soul grieved for their misery and intervened. You know, in our lives, sometimes it seems like God is taking too long to intervene. But that's His business. And we just must trust His hand. We can only be responsible for what we control. So if you are not a believer this morning, or you are a rebellious believer, remember that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And in due time, the day of calamity will arrive. For the unbeliever, your best heaven is right now. Your best heaven is in this life. For the true believer, know that God has so much for you through a life of obedience. And second, I want to point out that we serve, again, a gracious God who continually intervenes. And while he may intervene at will, our victories come through repentance. And quite honestly, as I was closing this and writing these words, I realized that we all, and maybe me at the front of that line, need to make a hard right turn to God and to the things of God if we expect to achieve any victory in this life. And wherever you are in that, in your walk with God, or even if you don't yet know God, I will close with the verse that I began with in Revelation chapter 22: The Spirit and the Bride say, "Come." Let him that heareth say, "Come," and let him that hath a thirst say, "Come," and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. We must only come, turn to the Lord this morning. And let's turn.